0: Hi everyone, I'm Hillary Kerr, and this is Second Life, a podcast spotlighting women who have truly inspiring careers. We're talking about their work journeys, what they've learned from the process of setting aside their doubts or fears, and what happens when they embark on their second life. Today, we are rebroadcasting our interview with Ellen Bennett, the founder and CEO of Apron and Chef Gear Company, Headley & Bennett. When we first aired this episode back in September of last year, we received an overwhelming amount of feedback, and it's easy to see why. Anyone who has ever met Ellen Bennett or merely just listened to her for a few minutes will tell you the same thing. She is an absolute force of nature. Ellen kicked open the back door of a local restaurant in Mexico City when she was just 18. I mean that literally, she'll tell you all about it and eventually cooked her way into some of the most highly sought after kitchens in the world, including Baco Mercat and Providence here in LA. Then she founded Headley & Bennett and started an apron empire that now uniforms the employees of over 6,000 restaurants and coffee shops all around the US and Canada. She is the perfect example of how determination and hustle can get you a really long way. And if you need to feel inspired, I promise, she's your girl. This is Ellen Bennett, now on Second Life. So, Ellen. Hello. Hi. On this show, we like to start at the beginning. So, what did you study in school, and what did you think you were going to be when you grew up?
1: So, I really wanted to be a chef when I was little, and I studied restaurant management. And so... I basically made a deal with my dad. I moved to Mexico City when I was 18, and I made a deal with my dad, and I said, if you pay for restaurant management school, I will learn how to cook professionally in a kitchen. So I get a balance of theory with practical. Interesting. And culinary school is, like, so much money. So he said, okay, deal. That sounds like a good deal financially for me. So that's what I did, which was the best thing I could have ever done.
0: So what did you learn when you were in school, and did it apply to your day-to-day in your first life? No, it
1: totally (laughs) didn't. And I feel like most people say no, too. Um, It was a lot of basic stuff, and I studied very hard to learn how to do Excel and random things like that, that now my CFO helps me do more than I even do. Um, But a lot of it was just, you know, how to manage budgets and spreadsheets and things like that, that really applied more to a kitchen than to what I'm doing today. But it. it was more... I appreciated the discipline of having to go to school and hit the tests and, you know, make the grades and all that. So it taught me discipline more than anything. But I think a lot of what you learn in life comes from life and boots on the ground and slamming your face into the ground and getting back up. And
0: what did you learn from that experience more than what did someone at school tell you how to do? So you were also learning how to cook at the same time. Yes. Where were you doing that?
1: I got a bunch of random little jobs in Mexico where I would find a kitchen that I liked and I would just walk in through the back door and ask the chef, like, hey, can I come in? And, like, it's called staging in the food world. And I would say, can I come in and just help you cook? Like, teach me the ways. And so it'd be me and, like, 40 big fat guys. (laughs) And I'd be on the line just making stuff with them being like, ooh, ¿cómo se hace esa salsa? Oh, my God, show me how you do the tomatoes. And I'd just be bopping around everywhere and they would just, you know, it was unusual to have... A young, I was 18, so a young, very interested girl that really wanted to learn about
0: the damn salsa. Interesting. So, just for our listeners who don't know, staging is like almost interning. Yes, except completely. Except you're in a kitchen and you're actually hands on learning how to do stuff, right? Correct.
1: So, someone will stand next to you and say, This is how you make the tomatillo salsa. And they'll lay out the ingredients and they'll say, Okay, cool. Cut this up, chop that up, measure these ingredients, combine it in the blender, then go. Put it in this deli cup, call it a day. It's very – I would say there's a very short amount of explanation. It's more like throw you in the fire, good luck, you better figure it out or you're out of that kitchen immediately. (laughs) That's kind of how kitchen land works.
0: (laughs) Got it. So did you have any skills – Walking into those kitchens, like how, you said that you'd always want to be a chef, but like, did you cook at home? Did you have knife skills? Did you have any idea what you were doing? <laughs> no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely, I think, to be a good cook, chef, whatever, you have to have the base of a good flavor palette. You know, you need to know if something is salty or not salty, does it need more acid, you need to add more crunch, sweetness, et cetera. Those basic elements I think you have to have a, a grip on or else you will get kicked out of a kitchen very quickly if everything you do is salty. So I had that. I think I had a really good foundation of a palette and I had always you know, cooked at home with my with my mom and my abuelita in Mexico. I would like pop into the kitchen when I, I remember being like nine years old, sitting on the counter, taking notes on like a random napkin of, how do you make those tamales? Okay, explain it to me. And then what? And then what are you at? So I was a very curious child. So I would constantly be in the kitchen, even at my friends' houses. I would go over to play with them, but I would end up you know, hanging out with their
0: moms, like figuring out how to make those beans the way that they made them. So did you know what kind of food you wanted to make from the start, or was that a process and something that you learned along the way? You know, when I was
1: learning to cook, it was very much just, what are those things that people eat in the world? And I I would go onto the internet and be like, maybe I should learn how to make beef stew. What about bagels? How about pasta. And I just, anything, imagine like a little 13-year-old child yeah. t- going into, you know, AOL.com, like dial up <laughs> back in the day and Googling allrecipes.com, which isn't, you know, it's, yes. it's that website. and it's, so, it's that. It is that. <laughs> it wasn't Bon Appetit, but it no. was what was Bon Appetit to me when I was yeah. 13 years old. And I would just do that. And so I was committed to the cause. I mean, I, when I made bagels for my mom, I didn't notice that the serving size was eight or nine dozen bagels. And I made all of them. Like, I did not stop till I made all the bagels. So my mom came home from work. She was a nurse, so she worked all day and came home around 730. And every counter surface in our kitchen had piles of bagels. Yeah, the hustle was real since very little with me.
0: (laughs) Okay, I got it. So what was your first job cooking professionally, like where you were actually getting paid?
1: At Providence and Baco Mercat. Okay. Used to be Lazy Ox with Joseph Centeno in downtown.
0: So that's LA. So how did you get from Mexico City back to LA and how did you get those first jobs?
1: Um, kind of in the same way I did all those other things I would just show up and figure it out so I showed up between two and four to those restaurants and I walked in through the back door like I had done in Mexico and I was like I want to talk to the chef where's the chef and I just like stormed up to both of them and I was like hi my name is Ellen Bennett and I'm a line cook and I want to get I want an opportunity to work in your restaurant and I'm Mexican and I have the work ethic to prove it and they were just like what are you are you Wait how old were you I was at this point I was 22 I had lived in Mexico from 18 to 22 and hustled and went to school and had a million jobs there and then moved So you back. felt
0: like you had some skills. Totally. I had skills. And not only that. Because, by the way, just for the record, for those <laughs> of you who don't know, I mean, both of these are amazing restaurants. But Providence is perhaps the most beloved, finest restaurant in Los Angeles. It's always like number one or number two on Jonathan Gold. May he rest in peace his top hundred list Yes, he was always number one and he
1: and he has a two michelin star restaurant so that's like even fancier
0: which so like that's like going to the harvard of restaurants one
1: that's the best example yes that's exactly right it is harvard it is mit maybe let's just take it to another
0: level it's mit MIT, perfection and all of that so like not to gender this but that's ballsy of you. Yeah, yeah. Definitely took some balls. <laughs> okay. So so you just walk in. You're like, I'm doing this. Yeah,
1: yeah. I was like, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to figure out how to get a job here. So I walked in. I said, give me the opportunity to come in and work on the weekend for free, and I will show you that I can do this. And he was like, Is All that right. a
0: common way of getting a job? Uh,
1: no, no. Typically, you know somebody and they send a recommendation email or you go to culinary school mm-hmm. and then you have the uh, merit to make that call and make that email. But I was just like, fuck it. Let's yeah. go. And I want to work here and I think it's an amazing spot. And why just, did you pick yeah. those
0: two restaurants?
1: Well, truthfully, my friend gave me a list of the top ten restaurants in LA, and she was like, "These are the places you need to go to." I don't even know if Michael knows this—that's the chef there. But when I walked in, I didn't actually know it was a two Michelin star restaurant. <laughs> I was—it was just one on the ten. So you—you you had top never eaten at
0: Providence? No, I
1: hadn't. I knew that it was fancy, but I didn't know how fancy, and I definitely didn't know it was a two Michelin star restaurant. But I mean, I was hitting up like Nancy Silverton, Suzanne, going like I was going to every best chef in the in the city. But I had just moved back from Mexico City, so I didn't. T- technically know who all these people were and you
0: hadn't technically eaten and and I hadn't
1: technically even though I technically told him that his restaurant was incredible and I had a great experience there but I was just like I gotta get in the door this has to be (laughs) (laughs) so had you eaten at Baco Mercat no no I hadn't I I just you (laughs) were just
0: flying blind girl by the seat
1: of my pants yes what I did know I didn't know how to cook their food. I didn't know what their food looked like, but I knew that if they gave me an opportunity— You know what the flavor to, profile was no, like. You but, didn't know what the type of— But I mean, if you understand how to cook, you can cook anything and anywhere. And I knew that if they gave me a chance, I would get a job. I just knew it in my gut of guts. Okay, so you said, I'll work for free on the weekend. Yes. And you did. And I did. And, and they said yes, both of them? Both of them said yes, even though like eight or nine other restaurants said no, or we don't have space, or whatever. Um, and so I did it, and I immediately thought, "Oh, I'm going to get hired on the spot that night at Providence." You're like, they were like yeah, polishing your knives. Totally, I'm so good. <laughs> and and the you know reality was that when I was cooking there, I didn't actually know how to do everything that they were doing because it was so technical. But I moved very fast, and so any time I had downtime, I was scrubbing the floor, I was mopping stuff, I was cleaning things, I was running around the kitchen like a maniac, just doing things, and they look for that. Like the work ethic and the, they call it sense of urgency in a kitchen, is kind of like the number one thing that will get you ahead in a kitchen. Got it. And then I would observe what other people did and then jump in and do it before they would do it the next time they were doing it. So they're like, damn, this girl's, this girl's like in it to win it. So they said, you did a great job, but, you know, technically we're not hiring. So, yeah, I don't know what to say. And I was like, shit, my, p- <laughs> my pinky's in the door. I'm not going to leave. No. I want to work here. So I said, don't worry about it. Just let me keep coming for free. So I worked for them for maybe another two weeks. And then they were like, how quickly can you quit your other job? We'd love to hire you full time. And so that I always say that because people think, oh, you get a no and then you just like pack your bags and leave. And it's like, no, no is the entrance. Like, what are you going to do next to climb in? Through that door. Like, how else are you going to get in? How do you prove your worth? And so I stuck it out enough time for them to say, okay.
0: So you were full time both places?
1: So I actually, (laughs) that uh, the first night that I worked at Baco, they said, okay, you know what? we do want to give you a job. They threw me on one station and I learned all the dishes. And I managed What station? um, I was on hot apps. Okay. So it was like everything that was getting fried, anything in a skillet, that was going to me. I think we did maybe like 140 covers. And I was managing the station alone and I had learned everything. And I had blue post-its all over the station with the ingredients that belong to each dish. So I didn't have to ask questions. I could just like look up and read like parsley, pickled <laughs> red onion. And I'd be like, okay, that's what I add to this one. So at the end of that night, they said, okay, you're hired. And at the same time, uh, Providence said, okay, you're great, but we're not hiring. But I decided to keep both because I felt like one was so fine dining and then one was like your ass to the fire. You know, you're like major covers, running around the kitchen, like learning how to do things that were much more, you know, you could touch the
0: grill and things like that. Whereas Providence, it was herbs and fine 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 dining and you said to providence like i'm sorry i would i'm gonna work for you but i'm still gonna work at this other yeah place. i said you know
1: what i, I have I'm this other awesome opportunity and i would i'd love to work here but i was already negotiating i was like <laughs> i will work for you but i'll work half the week and i'm gonna work half the week over here and it'll be great because then if you ever need me to sub in for somebody else you can you won't have to worry about overtime i was like i had it all figured out and they were like okay deal
0: so what kind of stuff were you working on there
1: I mean, at first it was picking herbs, then I learned how to, you know, shuck oysters. Picking herbs. Picking herbs, So yes. you'd like come in for 12 hours and pick herbs? Basically, yeah. So you would get a giant bucket of cilantro fronds from the market, and you had to pick the ones that had three leaves that were perfectly pristine, and then you had to put them in these little deli cups and put wet uh, paper towels at the bottom and the top and make sure that there was no brown, there was nothing. Every flower had to have every petal. And if it had missing petals and you were in the middle of service and chef came by and said, hey, I need cilantro fronds, and you gave him your fronds and they were disgusting or wilted, you would just throw them, you know, back at your station and be like, that's garbage. What's wrong with this? And then call the sous chef over and, like, three It'd sous chefs situation. Would run over and be like, hell just broke loose on uh, a <laughs> So like a very chill, low-pressure environment. Super low-pressure, yeah. You know, just cash, you know, really like life-work balance was a big big word that was used around the
0: kitchen. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So I know that a lot of professional kitchens are mostly comprised of men, or it seems to be yes. – it runs a little heavy yes. in, on that side of things. Was that, was that a bummer? Was that – not a big deal. Did it phase you in any way? You know, I, I think I was
1: very lucky to be in kitchens where it, it, as long as you had great work ethic and you hustled, it didn't matter if you were a man or a woman. And, you know, you just kind of did showed up. And I also think I might have had my blinders on so hard <laughs> that I was just like, show me how to do that. I want to do that. Teach me. Teach me the way. <laughs> and they were just like, oh, my God, this girl's crazy. OK, fine. I'll teach her. Sim so Roosti taught me all these little details and tricks. And he would just stand there and he's, you know, if anyone hasn't seen him, he's like, like a giant moose. He's huge, super tall, burly, giant beard. Huge huge hands. hands.
0: Huge hands. And it works with such delicate fish. Yes. On a side note, I feel like (laughs) Seth Rogen would play him in in a film. 1,000%. In like 20 years. Yes.
1: So he taught me all these different things and all these different, you know, great men in that kitchen taught me stuff too. And it was cool because by the time I left working at Providence, you know, I I had learned – a lot of different dishes from all the different stations, how to cut fish, how to shuck oysters, how to do all these different parts. It was really a well-rounded um, education on fish and fine dining. While at Baco, I learned speed and, you know,
0: quantity and uh, flavor did you stay, profiles. Did you stay on hot apps for long or did you move around?
1: Um, at Baco, Baca. I moved mm-hmm. around. At Providence, they would leave you, leave you in a station for a very long time. It was like one year here, one year there. Um, to very To learn every single detail. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Got it. But so. by the time I started my company, I had to start whittling down my days um, at Baco. So I kept Providence. I actually kept Providence almost year and a half to two years into Hedley and Bennett, I would go and work the weekends because I just couldn't let go. I just, there was something that I felt, it was like my safety net to the food world and to my own security of I don't know what, because it was like I was a minimum wage employee. It's not like I was making a ton of money, but I thought, no, that's my, that's my, like, security i can't well it's your mit exactly and your harvard like there's a prestige with it
0: that i understand that that can be and also you know just like lessons to learn and all that stuff but so anyway let's go back to starting the company so at what point did you think i should maybe maybe i'm not meant to cook professionally my whole life or maybe there's just something else that i should do at what point did you start to get the itch
1: I I got the itch about a year into Providence um, and I was, you know, standing in the kitchen and my apron was very much falling apart. Pockets had ripped off. Uh, the strap around the neck was like shriveled, like a shoelace, like a bad shoelace after you wash it in the dryer. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, it yeah. Just, that, like I, crumbled.
0: I feel like you must have been really delighted about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was delightful. <laughs> Plastic hardware, just like everything about it was so disgusting. Your uniform was gigantic. Everybody looked terrible. And they, look, they looked and they felt not great. And you're in there working these insane hours, getting your ass handed to you, looking and feeling like shit. And I was like, this is so weird. And I'm also a runner. And so when I first started running, I went and got, like, a great Nike outfit. And I put that thing on and I, I didn't even – I can't even explain it to you, but I, like, lifted my head up higher, and I was like, I'm a fucking runner. Yeah. And I then I went and signed up for the New York Marathon, and I ran the New York Marathon. Holy so shit. So it, like, really hit home for me, and I thought, holy shit, if I could make people feel that way in the kitchen— Huh. everywhere. I could almost change the culinary world. Like, I could bring dignity and pride to everyone in a kitchen, whether they're the line cook or the executive chef. I'm going to give this apron meaning and value and make it way better than anyone's making it. I'm going to make it in LA. I'm going to customize it. I'm going to use, like, Japanese denim and Italian chambray. And I'm going to fix all the shit that's wrong with it that I see that's wrong with it. And so it w- you had that whole vision from the jump. I, It was, yeah, I kind of, I have a wild imagination. (laughs) You should see the things I'm inventing for my wedding. Uh, Yes, yeah, I had kind of like this grand scheme of, bringing dignity to everybody. Got and it. I love helping people and making them feel good. Uh, so I think it just kind of coincided with all the things that I, if I hadn't been a runner, if I hadn't been at Providence, like it was just the stars sort of aligned. If your uniform hadn't been crap. <laughs> exactly. If my uniform <laughs> hadn't been falling off of me, if I hadn't been such a Tonka truck in a kitchen, my pockets <laughs> wouldn't have ripped off my apron. But I, they would get caught in the handles of the low boys yeah. in a kitchen. So they would just actually be hanging on the apron, like a pocket
0: just dangling. (laughs) Not helpful. (laughs) No. You're displeased with the garb. Yeah. But that's a big leap in between being displeased with uh, the uniform and actually starting a company. So how did that happen?
1: So, I mean, I think every good business starts with a need, right? Yeah. So this was a need that I had. And then I looked around and thought, okay, all these people need that too. And... um, A lot of the things that have happened in my life start with a big decision on my end where I say, I'm going to do this. And I decide in my head. And then life around me sort of starts happening to align with that. And I don't think it's just like, oh, you think it and then it happens. You know, you have to put hustle into it too, of course. So I had thought that. And then uh, a few weeks later, my chef at Baco said, hey, Ellen, there's a girl. She's going to make us some aprons. Do you want to order one? And I was like, Order an apron. Was a girl making
0: them? What? And it just like it all
1: flew through my head in a matter of I don't know ten seconds, and I vividly recall a standing over the cash register at Baco, and I was like, "Chef, I have an apron company. I will make you these aprons." He's like, "What are you talking about? You're a line cook in my kitchen." And I was like, "No, no, you don't understand. I just got a DBA I had gotten a DBA like a week before." And so in the state of California, in my eyes, I was really legit. And I said, I will make you those aprons. Explain what a DBA it's is. A doing business as. So it's like, you know, it makes you official, legal, proper. It's your license. It's your like, you're your official.
0: <laughs> so you said, I'm going to do this. I have yeah. this company. I'm going to
1: do it. Yes. And,
0: and he was. Chef said yes. He was like,
1: all right. I, I don't know. I think I just i convinced him I had enough vigor and chutzpah about it that he was like, okay, fine. So I mean, said, you're the
0: girl who walked in and <laughs> right. and ended up running hot apps <laughs> night one. So he yeah. probably felt like, I
1: oh, so probably can trust this one. I was like, come on, Jeff. This is going to be amazing. What's this girl charging you? I'll do it faster and better. And I was just, Did you know that you could do it faster and better? No. No. <laughs> But I knew that when I committed to something, I I didn't fail. I knew that. I knew that I could. I wouldn't fail my chef. And mind you, my job was on the line because he was my chef too, yeah. so I couldn't fuck it up. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he gave me the order, 40 aprons, and I had one month to do it. So I clocked out that night, and I ran around like a chicken with my head cut off trying to find— you know, pattern makers, sewers, fabric, a person to, you know, help me put it all together. It was quite the um Do you quite know how to sew? I don't. I don't know. But I love designing. Like, I've always enjoyed seeing something and thinking how it could be better. Like, my head is very engineerial in that sense.
0: So what was your vision for the Baco aprons?
1: I made it very collaborative from the get-go. I brought him a bunch of swatches. And I, I said, chef, these are the light, lighter weights. This is a little bit heavier. I don't know if you like the texture of this one. I feel like this looks good with the restaurant. I was thinking, you know, you have these red elements in the space. What if we made the straps out of something red? So I took it past what people in Apronland had been doing, which was just here's a black, here's a white, here's a green. I brought in branding. I incorporated their vision. I incorporated quality materials. And I made them in L.A. And so I, I turned in that first order after scrambling for three and a half weeks and basically bartering with people to make a pattern, bartering with someone else. To bartering get this with what? Food? Food. Yeah. Because so I was like, working at two you? fancy restaurants. Oh. So I was like, I will come and cook for you if you help me make this. And if you do this for me. I mean, I was using the resources I had, which I think is a great thing to do.
0: <laughs> I read that you had $300. Yes, this is correct. <laughs> so 40 aprons, $300. Yeah four yeah. weeks. Yes. And and a, a small
1: deposit that I got from Chef. And I just didn't touch the money that I made from that order. And I kept reinvesting it back into the company. That's why I kept my jobs for, you know, for so long, because I wanted to not spend more than I made. I was very old school about Headley & Bennett when it started.
0: Okay. So this this first order, what did they end up looking like? They were beautiful, but they fell apart within a week. So
1: within a week, Chef was like, Bennett, these aprons suck. And I was like, oh, my God, what do I do? And at that point, I could have just said, screw it. I'm not doing this. Throw in the towel. But I I told him, give me half the order. Keep the other half. I will repair these. And so we came up with the strap design that we have to this day, because I had that sort of gun to my head, and yeah. and I went out and sourced a much thicker webbing, something that laid flat that didn't wrinkle when you washed it, I realized that you had to test the fabrics. You couldn't just, like, find a fabric that looked cute and throw it on an apron that doesn't work that way. So, you know, I, I learned a lot of very important lessons from that first error, and any money that I did make was put back into that order to replace it. But it was also a, a very true lesson of a business owner that, like, you are fully responsible for what happens yeah. no matter what happens (laughs) most of the time and it's not for everyone like that level of responsibility is not uh, for the faint of heart and I think I was able to get through that and I was like okay I can do this
0: why was it important to you that things be made in Los Angeles and how did you find because so many companies talk about it but then there's the price issue and how did you figure out a way around that That was sustainable.
1: Yeah, I think at the beginning it was just – it was incredibly circumstantial. I told him I would take a month, so I wasn't exactly going to be sourcing stuff overseas. And I also loved the idea of knowing who was making it and working with them collaboratively in the same way that I had designed the apron with my chef. I wanted to be able to stand with the sower and say, hey, this is what the chef is thinking. And because I'm Mexican, my sower spoke Spanish. It was really easy for me to – I was like the – chef whisperer and the um, sower whisperer, right? I was, like, bridging this gap between two worlds that would have never talked to each other. Got it. All right, so order one goes well enough. (laughs) Well enough. He still used me for all the rest of his restaurants after that because I didn't just say, I'm sorry. I made it right. And he appreciated the speed at which I fixed it, which I think any customer appreciates. Honesty and speed. So what happened from there? So from there, I thought, Something inside me just said, okay, this is, this is right. And a lot of people were like, that's, that's fun. Like, that's cute that you're doing that. That's really sweet. And it was a little
0: bit like. That's a little reductive, is it not? Oh,
1: 100%. And it was from a lot of people, to be honest. It was from my, my parents, my friends. They were like, that's cool. Like, that's cute. Let her do her like little good apron side thing. Hustle. Yeah, great side hustle. Good luck, Ellen. <laughs> and I was just like a bat out of hell after that first order. I thought, this is this is fucking awesome. Because I saw how the cooks in the kitchen put those aprons on and they raised their head in the same way that I raised my head when I started. Really.
0: Running. So you yes. had a
1: good response from the from the team. One thousand percent. And it felt really gratifying. Oh, and I was like, awesome. I am helping them feel better about themselves. I'm giving them something that's like a cape of honor. You put it on and you go into service and you're like, you're entering battle properly dressed and you're going to do a better job because of it. Because it's a lot of it's very mental. It's like confidence. You have the confidence to show up and do a good job.
0: Good. Now go do the good job. That's incredible. So... You had one thing go well. Yes. Did you then start doing – did you have like a bag of aprons and go I had a on a swatches. <laughs>
1: yeah, I had a bag of <laughs> swatches because I couldn't afford making aprons in my – fabric supplier at the time said to me, you know, what if I give you a yard of each one and you can just make a couple samples and show them to people? And I thought, that's a great idea. So I now had maybe four samples. Sample aprons. Sample aprons in a bag. And I had my little brown Mini Cooper. And I was just, I was like, all right, I'm going to go to farmer's markets. I'm going to start going to food events. And I'm just going to show up wherever I can where chefs are there. And So but wait a second. <laughs> You're still working two jobs. Yes, yes. And I was a personal chef in the morning for a family. So I was technically working three jobs. But mind you, when I lived in what, Mexico. What free
0: time did you have to I had do no this? free time. I so like no farmer's markets, that's Saturdays and Sundays yeah. for civilians. But yes. like Mondays and Wednesdays for Correct, our pros. For, for Chef
1: World at like 6 a.m.
0: So you would go yeah. and do all of this yes. at all hours. Yeah, I mean,
1: I was laying aprons out on cars to show the chef who was walking by what the apron looked like and he would put an order on the spot there with me like okay cool these are great like those look awesome I saw John and Vinny wearing them okay I'll take three and I was just wheeling and dealing it like that but also customizing them and and telling them you know well I'll come visit you and then I would show up and they'd be like oh I didn't think you were actually going to show up and here I am again yeah and then I would deliver and I would deliver it with a smile and a hug and run over and be like look these are so
0: cool and it's like everyone was helping me build the company together so tell me about about the meat cute with John and Vinny. So, um, gentlemen who own, who are incredible yes, restaurateurs are animals, incredible chefs. Toi Mac, Petit Toi, John Kismet, and Vinny
1: John and Vinny's. I mean, they're incredible. Vinny saw my chef from Providence, my pastry chef, wearing that apron at a food event.
0: Oh wait! So you so you had done all of the Baco ones, yes, and then you started dipping into Team Providence as yes. well. And Team Providence had an event happening in New York. And
1: I thought, I gotta get an apron on my chef who's going so that he can wear it and then maybe other people will see it and they'll like it. And so I gave them these two aprons. I made them for this event. They took them, so Chef Michael and Chef David. And Chef David wore the apron and Vinny saw it and he said, Hey, where'd you get that apron? It looks super cool. And so he gave him my email. And I will never forget getting that email from Vinny because, you know, he's like a hero in the food space. Sure is. And he said, you know, your your aprons are rad. I'd love to get a couple. And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) Did you die a little bit? I totally died a little. I died every time I got a new order when I was that age. Uh, I was 25. I'm 30 now. But yeah, I basically died every time. He just wanted one personally, or did he want to do a whole team for animals? Five. I think he got something like five, which I thought was incredible because at that time, anything over one was a lot for me. Um, And my one sewer had just quit working at the sewing place that I had found him at. To come work for me full time, he just told so, me one day. He was just like, "What you're doing is really cool, and I want to help you. I'll come work for you full time." So now I
0: had an employee, sort of. But you still had two full time jobs, correct? Three full time jobs. Yes. You know, this isn't even your full time job. Correct. This isn't you. Ho- <laughs> <What's>, ah! <laughs> and now you have an employee yes. who self-selected.
1: Self-selected employee working out of his living room um, in Compton. And uh, so but I, he, believed. he believed and I believed and together we were we just kind of leaped you, out the you window f- and said we can do this.
0: Did you feel like, OK, I've got enough work for this guy. Like, yeah. I feel like this is the right thing for him to do. Because I remember the first time we hired someone, yeah. I was sick over it because oh, yeah. she was moving from San Francisco to L.A. And I was responsible for her. And like, what if we ran out of money? Like,
1: I don't <laughs> but know. But you know what? It really, it really like makes your uh, needs rise. Like yeah. having a kid, you pull your shit together. Yeah. So he said that and I I was not going to turn that, down that opportunity. So I said, okay, great, let's do this. And at this point, I was starting to get little orders here and there. I went to a dinner at uh, Inc. with Michael Voltaggio and I was standing there and Michael seems very serious, but he's an incredibly kind human being. And, and he was like, well, those look cool. And I was like, yeah, they're awesome. I'd love to come by and show you. And so he said, well, come come back tomorrow. My brother's <laughs> in town. And I was like, okay. And I met up with them at a sushi spot at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. Him and his brother were eating sushi with their girlfriends or wife or whatever. And I'm standing there standing while they're eating the sushi at this spot on 3rd Street and I'm like, okay, well, um, enjoy your meal. Let me just show you what I've got here. And I'm, like, doing a song and dance in the restaurant, selling them my aprons because that was the only time they had. It. And I was like, well, fuck it. I'm here. I'm going to do it. And? And, and so he... He ordered a bunch of aprons, and then his brother placed a 150-unit f- order. And I was that your biggest? Totally, by by a lot. Um, and I'll tell you a really ridiculous story attached to that. So we made those 150 aprons, we delivered them on time, and then later on they ordered another huge batch. And because he was my, my biggest customer, the sewers didn't get it out on time, and we drove to FedEx at the airport. Like trying to get in onto the runway thinking that we could just – very naive – thinking that we could just deliver the aprons to the airplane to get it on the FedEx plane to get it to D.C. on time for another order, which I laugh about now because obviously you can't do that. Super
0: illegal. Super illegal. <laughs> not, and, not a thing. And not
1: like the plane's going to say, oh, yeah, sure, here, I'll Hop just on. take that package for you. Um, but that was the kind of crazy shit we were doing to get these orders out on time and make our customers happy from – from like day 1. I mean, so, it was like
0: we were committed to the cause. <laughs> at what point did you finally say, "All right, no more tobacco." I know you obviously kept going yeah. in a smaller capacity at Providence, but when did you start scaling that down too?
1: Um, we got a we got a piece in cool hunting, which It was insane. Um, And then a little bit later, we got a piece in the L.A. Times. And, I mean, it was like the windows and ceiling were falling on us. We couldn't even handle the velocity of – and volume of people contacting us from all over the country. Like civilians or professionals? Professionals. Being like, I have a restaurant. I'm opening one. Let me. Ho- I need something like this. I'm trying to do something custom. Um, I saw my stuff on my friend Michael Voltaggio. He gave me your number. Like it just kind of spread like wildfire. And I was working, I don't know, seven days a week. I was setting up a farmer's market stand on Sundays. I was working at Providence after the farmer's market stand. I mean, I was working so much. It was insane. I, mean, I was permanently running on adrenaline. Yeah. And I loved it. And I was so excited about what I was doing. And the coolest thing was that all these people were excited about making their staff look and feel better. And that, at the gut of it, I think, was what has driven me so hard all along the way. Because it's like, yeah, it's awesome. It's aprons. It's a business, whatever. But, like, the purpose and the core of what we were doing was giving dignity and pride to people and making them look and feel awesome. And that sort of just resonates through all the bullshit that comes with a business.
0: And you're also an insider. You're an actual chef. You're an actual cook. You're actually in the industry, on the line. You get it. Yes. I mean, that authenticity. I mean, like, I feel like... Um, the industry is very tribal in that way, where totally. it's like you know, because it's such a physical and and mental and like intense situation and yeah. environment. That then to know it's one of your own making them, that also had to really, like, I, I would imagine, felt good for people.
1: Yeah, I think that definitely wanting to support one of their own with
0: people too. At what point did you decide to focus on it full time?
1: Um, it was almost. It was almost two years in. We had an office already, and we had employees, like proper employees, not just my sower. How did you know how to win, how to hire? Also, had you ever I built just a kept team before? Finding no, 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 no. I was twenty six at that time. I, <laughs> I didn't know how to do anything. I had been a line cook at best. Um, I just uh, there was a really amazing girl who's still an employee of mine to this day, and she said, "You know, you've got something here. You've got a vision, and you're crazy. And I want to help you. So if you want me to help, I will come on." And so she worked for me for free for like two months coming to my house and just working out of my living room. And then when we got an office, she worked. I heard I hired her part time and I took her out to dinner to tell her that I could officially afford to pay her twelve dollars an hour. It was the biggest, best day for both of us. She was so delighted. And um, it's just been. Yeah. From there, we just started hiring people that we knew. And, you know, as with every business, you grow, go grow with just friends at first if you're bootstrapping it. And then you eventually have to start hiring people that are like professionals and that know their skill set. And so that's been a whole evolution for the company, too.
0: Were you still self-funded? Were yes. you raising yes. money? No,
1: we have. I actually still own it 100%. <sighs> so I I figured out how to do it through all those adventures. And I thought, well, I, can, I think I can keep going. And I also felt, and this is an unusual thing to decide, but I felt like if I take on outside funding, I will have someone else that's going to come in and want to run it. And then I won't learn how to run it myself. And I want to learn how to run a business. I don't want to just chuck money at problems. I yeah. want to know how a p l works. I want to know what EBITDA is. I want to understand the inner gizzards of what it takes to operate something. And I and I kind of made that commitment, just like I made the commitment to move to Mexico. Or I made the commitment to run the marathon. I, I made a commitment to myself that I was going to learn how to run a fucking business and not just hand off my idea to someone and hope to God that they did it right. So how
0: many people work for you now?
1: We have 46 that work for me. And how – it's 6,000. It's 16,000 square feet. We have a factory in downtown L.A. And uh, for those of you that don't know what I do, I I basically have – like an apron and workwear company that's morphed into a culinary lifestyle brand. And so we outfit, like, the best chefs and makers in the world. And we now do crazy, awesome collaborations with companies that have nothing to do with aprons in many ways. Like, we have a line coming out with Vans in September. And Please so tell we're... me there's a black and white check one. <laughs> there's actually an apron involved with checkers. Ugh. Yes. Yes. So we're, we've taken this community that we've built along the way that we call our Apron Squad And it's a bunch of, like, dreamers, doers, and hustlers and people that are out there, boots on the ground, getting shit done, and they show up and they make stuff happen. Why not
0: have a rad outfit that goes along with it? So I have an interesting question – interesting to me anyway. I have read pretty much every autobiography that every chef and every cook has ever written about what it's like to actually work in a kitchen professionally. Yeah. And it seems very intense. And very physical and also – mental in that you have 90 things going Mm -hmm. at any given time and 47 different combinations of ingredients that go in 47 different ways that you have to keep straight in your head and timing and all of that stuff. So I feel like that would make you a really amazing multitasker. But I'm curious, like, what other skills were you sort of honing in your first life Mm -hmm. that you use on a day-to-day basis outside Mm. of the kitchen? Such a good question.
1: Okay, so sense of urgency, attention to detail, um, committing to something. You know, if you get the recipe wrong, you have to do it again. You you can't just half-ass. Oh well, it. <laughs> yeah. And I really, it was such a, it was such an amazing opportunity to get to work at a Baco and a Providence at the same time because I learned speed and resilience in one, and attention to detail at the other, and just doing something right and mm-hmm. what happens when you don't (laughs) and, you know, measure twice, cut once type concepts. And um, now in so many ways, I'm like the chef of my business. So I'm the one that walks down and, you know, the salad is not right and I can smell it out a mile away. And in that ability to spot when something is not the ideal scenario kind of just gave me like a sixth sense in my business. And so even though I have a CFO now. I know when something's not quite right, when I'm looking at our P&L or I'm looking at different numbers that she's giving me. I'm like, there's something off about this. Look into this more. And and one for one, she'll find something. And so I just have this like umbilical cord to my business that I think every business owner has. But really understanding from a, from a gut check perspective – when something is not right, to dig into it and and put that fire out and really fix it. That's something in a kitchen. That you really they really
0: like hone hone <laughs> it in, and you
1: sort of have it like beaten into your head. Like when I first started cooking at at Baco, my station used to be really messy, and my and the pastry or the sous chef would walk by and be like, "No, stop what you're doing. Clean everything." And she did it like six or seven times a night with me until. I couldn't not have a clean station. This is just muscle memory. And so as our teams grow, how to teach people muscle memory in everyday jobs, I think, is vital. Time management. I mean, everyone has similar issues. How do you organize your day? How do you get things done? How do you communicate effectively? How do you give a clear task list? You know, if you just say, like, go clean the walk-in. They're going to go in and do whatever they want. But if you're specifically like, okay, you need to empty the bins. You need to do this. You need to do that. That just helps you be a better leader because you're giving clear direction and you're actually putting the responsibility on yourself to communicate what you need and not just assume that everyone can read your mind and then be okay with everyone being upset because they couldn't read your mind and then you're mad at them. Right? That's a terrible leader. That's not good leadership.
0: This also stuff is also, like, very relationshipy as well. I feel like it oh, probably yeah. makes you a better partner in general.
1: Yes. No, it definitely.
0: So in the culinary and restaurant world, it also seems like there's a very clear hierarchy. Yes. It's like – Chef says everything goes, Mm -hmm. everyone knows their place, and it's quite regimented, almost like the military. Yeah, totally. Because you're, like, creating something together in a really precise sort of way. Was that something that was important to you to emulate when you were building your own company, or did you want it to be more like a a flatter org chart?
1: You know – I I truly went from being a line cook to a CEO, right? And it was a six-year solo process, so to speak, since I didn't take on investors. And um, it was really hard, and it still is hard. And I I have an executive coach that is – guiding me on how to be a better leader, how to be a better CEO, what it means to be a CEO. And I think that the hardest thing was that in a kitchen, everything is done a little bit by brute force. And it's just like, get it done, because you're going to get it done. And I don't care what you think or how you feel or anything. And that has its own set of repercussions that I think the food space is now feeling pretty drastically, you know, Mm -hmm. with the Me Too movement and all that stuff. And just, you know, in general dignity for, for people in the kitchen. But in, in a professional setting, call it, like, not the kitchen, it's very challenging to bring that sort of attitude or perspective. And while there's so many things I'm really grateful for, there's so many things I had to learn how to apply to a, like, call it a 9-to-5 worker and in a administrative capacity. And yeah, it's so hours, different. It's very different. Like in a kitchen, your hours are two to midnight or two to two in the morning. And you don't care if you're working 13 hours. That is what you do. But in a you know, office setting, you know, there's like work-life balance and eight hour shifts and breaks and all these things that are so and necessary. And you have to think
0: about how to motivate people. Yeah. Whereas and on a much you, bigger level. And you came from a place where everyone was so highly motivated. Yes. Yes. I
1: kind of compare it to you're you're out in the ocean and you've got a little boat and you're picking people up on your boat and maybe they're on the jet skis next to you and you're having to pull all these jet skis together and keep them wrangled and get them focused and driving in the same direction and making sure that nobody jumps off their jet ski and say, come on, it's like a bunch of minnows and they're all following you and then you decide to build a bigger boat and get them off their jet skis and put them on a boat that's a bigger office and and it's just this crazy evolution of going from one-man show to five-man show to 10 to 20 to 30 30 to 40 and how do you keep everyone on board and, and keep the culture and keep the culture or evolve the culture because when you start you know it's just like everybody's just doing every job yeah. and then you start to you have to a bunch need, of generalists
0: and then you start to need specialists exactly and that is a
1: very hard growing pain moment in every business because then people feel left out and, like, I used to help you with everything. Why am I not helping with everything? And it's because, like— I don't well, want to be we, siloed. Right. We want—well, because we want you to be focused on sales now because your job is solo sales and not customer service and shipping and all the 18 other jobs you have. So
0: that, that's that been, like, holy cow, MBA boots on the ground <laughs> Um, there's an amazing book by Dr. Marshall Goldsmith called uh, What Got You Here Won't Get You There.
1: Oh, I've heard of it. I haven't read it, but I've heard it's out of control.
0: And it's a really interesting idea that, yeah. like, the people who get you from 0 to yep. 10 yeah. are not always the same people who get you from 10 to 50 or whatever it may be. Yeah. And But some people can adapt, and it's a matter of figuring all of that out, which can be very taxing.
1: It's crazy, and it's not for everyone. Like, I do not think that everyone should be a business owner. I really don't. (laughs) We recently um, opened a a separate Instagram account to Headley & Bennett. It's just at Ellen Marie Bennett, and it's my adventures as a CEO. And I'm very transparent that, you know, I'm getting up at 6 a.m. to go work out, and I'm finishing my days around 10 and 11, and I'm showing all the nuances of different things. And not even everything makes it on my Instagram. But I'm trying to show people that it isn't all – sexy and glorious. It's a lifestyle. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But also that, you know, every good company needs entrepreneurs within the company. If you have people that are self-starters and motivated and enthusiastic from within your business, your company will only grow
0: that much more. And that's something that's interesting when you're hiring. It's like, are you resourceful? Can you give me examples of that? Like, when did you take something an extra mile? Because it seems to be, it's a learned skill, but Mm -hmm. it's also there's some of it just has to come from within, I think. Uh,
1: absolutely. I think I think a lot of it is sort of just in, in you to figure like it you out are, and see. You it aren't. And be like, yeah, yeah, totally. totally. <laughs> you got the
0: hustle or you don't. Okay. Yeah. Back to some practical stuff. Okay. So a lot of the women and men who listen to this podcast are people who have great careers or yeah. have medium careers or mm-hmm. just have careers. Yeah. And They know that there's something else that they want to do, but they're not quite sure about Mm -hmm. how to do it. What advice would you give someone who's struggling with making the leap into their next life?
1: Um, I think a reminder that life is not a straight line. And just because your friends have it figured out, you can't, don't compare yourself to anyone, first of all. You have your own magical special sauce and you have to figure out what that is. And if you can find what are those things that, make you have a fire inside and tap into that and find your lane in the world, um, it will be a lot easier for you to to come to that second life and that second career, so to speak, because, you know, a lot of people for call it lack of creativity will say, oh, that's a great ice cream shop. I'm going to open an ice cream shop, too, that looks just like that. And you're just chasing someone else's dreams. You're taking away their opportunity because you're now stealing their idea. And that can only go off so long that it can only take you so far. And then on top of that, you're going to hit so many roadblocks because that's what business is, that if you don't have that true, innate passion, it's not going to get you through those hurdles. You're going to stay on the floor because you just don't have the right purpose behind what you're doing to keep going. So I think that's super important. And from the get-go, I always had my blinders on. I wasn't looking at what other apron companies were doing. I was creating my own adventure. And I think if you don't have your own quote-unquote apron, try lots of stuff. Go do internships. Go apprentice. Get out of your comfort zone. You're not just going to have some grand opportunity land on your doorstep. You need to get your ass out there yeah. and try shit and be bad at things and learn and be better
0: and and be humble enough to go and say like i don't know everything i will i will exactly. come and work for you or i would just let me come and spend some time exactly giving your, people uh, often say
1: yes they totally do and if you want you know if you want to like Climb the rings in the ladder of your company and do stuff like that. Go the extra mile. Stay later. Watch what people do. Do things without people asking you. Be self-initiating on things. I, I notice that if my employees ever do that. It's incredible to watch that happen. Um, and that's really the best way to find your own version of an apron.
0: You find the perfect cilantro frond.
1: Exactly, Without. Find your fraud,
0: find your fraud. <laughs> find your fraud
1: and paint it purple <laughs> because that's unique and that's and and seriously, though, the world needs more uniqueness. It yeah. needs more people being different and being call it weird. but what is weird? You know, what is weird? Just
0: it's a point of view.
1: It's a point of view exactly like okay, when I started people thought apron land was cute. Now we get written up by fast company and like she went from line cook to CEO of a multi-million dollar company. They were not saying that when I started. And so you have to be your own cheerleader long enough to get your shit off the ground and to grow it because you want to grow it. Not because you're waiting for the accolades of a fast company, but because you have a purpose and a soul behind it. If you build it, they will come. Yes.
0: As the, as the movie says. So I also think it's really important to talk about, like, the not-as-cute stuff. Yeah. Because in this very Instagrammy world, we always <laughs> share all of the happy things. So yes. what is a big mistake that you've made in your career, and how did you deal with
1: um, it? Pretty early on in Headley and Bennett land, we had this order for— do you know the chef Richard Blaze? I do. Juniper and Ivy, when Juniper and Ivy was opening, we made their aprons, and I think it was 200 aprons. And um, we got the Pantone color wrong on the embroidery, and we realized it maybe five or six days before the restaurant opened. And we had shipped the aprons, and it was a huge account for us, and it was a very big deal. And at the time, it was going to cost us thousands of dollars to replace that order. And I nearly died because it was very important. And uh, you know, he was a famous guy. Yeah. And um, I had to do like what a proper business person should do. And I, I took that order back and I replaced the entire order for them. And I said, I'm so sorry about what happened. There were errors on both ends, but I assumed responsibility. We repaired the order. We changed out the aprons completely, replaced the entire order. It was a huge blow to our bottom line at that time. And um, we just sucked it up and replaced the order and did it. My team at the time was just, we were all, we just didn't even know what to do. It was was terrible. Any money we had made that month just went out the window to that order completely. And we like could barely pay our rent. And it was just hard. (laughs) So that happened, you know, at the beginning, it happened all the time where there was you know, one time where an order for Jamie Oliver didn't get out on time and I actually paid $1,700 to have someone get on a plane and fly to London and hand deliver the aprons because I was not going to let that order not arrive. So we've we've done some crazy shit to make things go right. You hand couriered. <laughs> I, I couldn't even go because I was working all my jobs. I had somebody else go. Yeah, they hand couriered it to... London for Jamie Oliver, uh, for an event that he was doing.
0: Wow! Yeah, it was, that is customer service. Yeah, yeah, that
1: was a that was totally
0: a very crazy one. That is setting the bar very high. <laughs> that is amazing. What are you working on now? And what are what's like your next big goal? Well, I just signed to do a book. Hey! Yeah,
1: por- that's exciting. Very exciting with Portfolio, which is you know one of the biggest business yeah. book um, publishers in the country, and a lot of the people that write for them are older men, yeah, white men, and like, but also people like Seth Godin and Simon yeah. Sinek. So it's kind of a huge honor to get to write a book, and it's going to be the journey and the hustle and how I have built what I've built, bootstrapped, and um, it's morphing into a giant culinary lifestyle world that started with aprons, but now is so many other things. And the cherry on top is that I can get out there in the world and and share my story and say, like, you can do it too. You know, like, I started this with $300 and I'm 30 years old and I own my own company. Yeah. And I'm alive to to talk about it. And it is hard, but I also absolutely love it. And I know that this is going to be one of the many adventures that I do in life. But if you can, Walt Disney says, if you can dream it, you can do it. And I, I really believe that. I think you really can. Who is your dream person who does not wear your apron who you want to? So Oprah's entire culinary team wears Hadley and Bennett, but I've never seen her wear an apron. So Oprah, girl, if you're out there, put an apron on. We just recently started... Getting aprons for Michelle and Barack Obama, so that was very cool. So I check that off the list. That was incredible. No. Yes. Oh my god, that is amazing. <laughs> yeah, that was very exciting. Um, we, I wanted to to have our outfits. I'm, I mean, our aprons on like Food Network, and now we outfit pretty much every show on the Food Network. So I got to check that off the list. Yeah. I wanted to have the Apron Factory. Got to check off that off the list. So I'm I'm dreaming and accomplishing, and then coming up with thirty other ideas and more dreams. You can't just sit on your laurels and get to one and say, okay, I made it. I got Martha Stewart. No, it's like, okay, now
0: to the moon. <laughs> uh, to the Oprah. <laughs> to the Oprah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. Last question, Alan. If you could go back in time and talk to, let's say, 19-year-old you, what advice would you give yourself? I think I would just tell myself
1: to take a beat and give myself time to think through things. I move very rapidly, as you've now, by now seen. And I used to just decide and do. And now that I have all these people on their jet skis on my boat, you know, it's a little bit, it's, you have more responsibility on your plate and you have to really analyze things in a much bigger context. So as I've grown as a CEO, I've learned to think outside just how does this affect me and one other person, but how does this affect your entire ecosystem from a financial, a production, an operational level, and looking at it from lots of different ways and getting other people's perspectives. And then you can formulate an accurate, great decision. And even then, sometimes decisions are not right. But being willing to take a beat I think is something that I would have, I would have saved myself a lot of headaches if I had just thought something through maybe a touch more than I did. And it it was a blessing and a curse, right? Because if you don't see a wall, you run right through it. Yeah. But I could also, I could see how it would help to just think, think stuff through a little bit more. All right.
0: Well, thank you. That was the founder and CEO of Hedley & Bennett, Ellen Bennett. For more inspiring interviews with women like Ellen, head on over to secondlifepod.com, where we have so many more for you to peruse. If you like today's show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to rate and review us. We love seeing you spread the word on social and now you can tag us in your posts. We are at Second Life Pod on Twitter and Instagram. We even have a Facebook page, just saying. We always want to know who you'd like to hear from on the show, so send in your request to hello at secondlifepod.com if you're into email, or you can DM us on Instagram. I'm at Hillary Kerr. The show is at Second Life Pod. Our DMs are always open. I'm Hilary Kerr, and you've been listening to Second Life.